Well, guys, uh, I was going to intro myself, but apparently Tom is better at being Tony than Tony is at being Tony. So I'm Tony. Nice to meet you guys. Uh, I know most of you guys here, but I also don't know a lot of you. So I'd love to get to know you. But I just graduated from the U of M last year. Um, so I was in these very seats. I love Salt Company so much that I'm still here, which is fun. And I feel grateful to be here. So thanks for being here with us. Um, yeah, but... This week, we are on our third week of our foundation series here at Salt Company. Now, two weeks ago, you guys heard from Jordan Adams, which if you don't remember him, he's the guy who did the announcements, but also the one who posted the picture of his just adorable baby in the kickoff. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but he, he looks like the Marshmallow Man, and he's so cute, so you should remember that. Uh, he talked about how crazy it is that a God so big would want intimate relationship with us. Last week, our head pastor of our local church, Drew Stevenson, um, I think it might have broken the mic. I don't know. He yelled in it for like 30 minutes, and it was amazing. I was like, you're a boss. Okay. He talked about uh, the incredible reality that we're simultaneously incredibly valuable and incredibly broken. This week, we're going to talk about how a God that hates sin could love sinners, and that's through Jesus. So I just want to say, um, when I first came into college, I... Didn't know any scripture. I may have read part of the book of Matthew, which is one of the gospels in the Bible. Um, I had no idea how to walk with Jesus. And Cole can attest to this, but we were straight up scrubs of human beings. Like, I can't even, I don't even know how to make that less brutal, but we were just bad at being human. Um, yeah, okay, whatever. I'm going somewhere with this, I think. Okay, we we're bad at being human. I didn't know much, but I knew two things. I knew that Jesus could change me, and I knew that I needed to be changed. So if you're new here, if you wouldn't consider Saul coming to your home, if you're visiting in this place, I want you to know the only prerequisite is that you would ask yourself that question today. It's not, you don't have to believe to belong. You don't have to know all the cultural things. All you need to do is ask yourself the question, do I need to be changed today? Do I need something in my life to be changed? And we believe that the news of Jesus, that he died and rose again three days later, we believe that could actually change you. We believe that if that went from your head to your heart, that you would leave this place different. So we talk about him every week, and this week I have the pleasure of talking about him the entire time, which is fun for me. Okay, cool. Well, we're going to jump right into it. So uh, part one of this message is Jesus the man. So if you guys have a Bible, we'll open up to Mark chapter 14, 34. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. We think it, they're great. We think it would change your life if you got one. So come get one. They're free. It's awesome. So Mark chapter 14, 34. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. All right, we're going to dive right into it. So basically where we're catching Jesus is in the garden before the cross. So this is a garden that Jesus went to a lot. He prayed there. He talked to his father there. It was a good space for him. But, but we, what we know about this prayer is it was a little bit different from prayers he prayed before. Um, it was a prayer talking about the cross, okay? So as I read this, I tried to think of something in my life that reminded me of this. And um, yeah, think of something sad. Like, I know that sounds weird, and I know it, like, seems like a pretty hard turn, but just think about one time in your life you were actually genuinely sad. 
And as I think about this, I think it's something that was pretty hard in my life pretty recently. Um, a lot of you guys know my story. Uh, for the good chunk of my adult life, I was a workaholic. I think I spent way too much of my time working, way too much of my time fighting to know my worth. And I think a lot of that was due to insecurity, but a lot of that was actually because one of my biggest dreams growing up was being able to financially help out my parents. So um, growing up, I saw my mom work overnights, multiple jobs. I saw her work just crazy hours. And I hated that, but we barely scraped by growing up. And I just wanted so badly to one day make it. You know, I don't know if that, like to one day make enough money where I could provide for my own family and then help them out. And one of my biggest dreams was that, man, I thought it would be so cool if I could just buy them a house one day. So they wouldn't have to worry about maybe not missing a payment or, or they, they wouldn't have to worry about that anymore. And a couple months ago, my parents moved to Texas and I thought things might be different. Um, I think th I thought things might be changed. I was, I was hopeful that my mom could just work a normal job, that she wouldn't have to work two jobs anymore and that she could get her nights back. And, and I, about a month ago, I got off the phone with her and she told me she was back to working two jobs. And I think when I heard that, it just brought back a lot of pain from my childhood. It brought back a lot of pain of watching her leave the house at 10 p.m. to come back at 9 or 10 the next morning. It brought back a lot of hurt. Um, and what sucked is I couldn't do anything to help her. And I, I felt like I was here at Salt Company and I love this job. Like, I, I cannot stress this enough. I feel so honored to work for this, this ministry. And I love this ministry. And I'm so ridiculously crazy about people coming to know Jesus, but I felt just such shame because I'd given up a career in finance that if I would have taken that, I, I think I could have helped my parents out, and now I can't. And so I remember after that conversation, I just started bawling, and there was nothing to hold that back, and, and I think that's what we get in the garden with Jesus. As we pick up the story in the garden when Jesus was experiencing heartbreak and pain. And some translation says that he was sweating blood. In this translation, it says he fell on the ground. He was torn up, he was crying. And so the word that he uses in verse 34 is sorrowful. So I wanna read out the definition of that and then we can help figure out what that means for us. Um, the word sorrowful means experiencing or marked by or expressing sorrow, especially that associated with irreparable loss. Okay, so why? Why was Jesus sorrowful? Okay, so if you guys have read any of the Gospels, you know that Jesus was a straight baller, okay? Like he like starved for like 40 days and the devil's like, you want some food? And he's like, man does not live on bread alone, bro. And then it was just like, boom, crushed the devil. It was great. He was like, his disciples were like, dude, it's like storming. He's like, you're fine. I got you. And then he just calms the waves. Like, I don't know. Jesus is crazy, he never was anxious. He was never scared. He never felt nervous. Okay, so why in this moment do we see him bawling on his knees, crying out to his father? The loss that Jesus is referencing that's associated with this feeling of sorrow is he knew that bearing the weight of the world's sin would result from being separated from his dad. He wasn't afraid of the physical pain. It was brutal, and we'll talk about that later, but what he was most fearful of was being separated from dad. 
because God hates sin. Okay, so hate is like a pretty strong word. And I don't know, this just makes me mad, so I'm just going to talk about this. Have you ever like said you hate something and the person next to you is like, do you hate it or do you strongly dislike it? And they just like, they look at you like they got you. And you're just like, shut, shut up, get out. Like, I don't need that. Okay, think about something you hate. Like something that like if someone brings up, you like, you look at them with the eye. Okay, I hate porta potties. Now this might make me seem pretty shallow, but here's why. I think they're only marginally better than nature. Okay, I don't like them. I hate that you can smell them before you can see them. Sometimes the outside looks like it hasn't been washed since inception. I'm just like, I do not want to touch that door handle. That's horrible. Okay, I hate porta potties. I don't even want to think about them. I definitely don't want to be near them. And I don't want to think about other people using them before I do. For sure not. That's the worst. Okay. God hates sin. That pause was too long. Okay. God hates sin. Okay, what does that mean? It means that he doesn't want to think about it. He doesn't want to watch you doing it. And he just hates it. So when Jesus asked God to take the cup away from him, when Jesus asked God to, to remove that from him in his prayer, the cup symbolizes God's hate towards sin. Now, just imagine this with me, okay? Jesus would pray often, probably every day, maybe multiple times a day, and he would look up into heaven and he would see his father. And every time, there are some times in the Gospels where God was like, dude, that is my beloved son. He shines light on him. He has like doves or something that come out. It's just amazing. And he looks up every single time and God's just like, I love you. I love you and I'm so proud of you. This time, Jesus looks up and he sees God's anger. For the first time, Jesus looks up and he sees God's wrath and hatred, not his love or his mercy. He sees God's separation. So you might ask yourself, okay, God hates sin. Whose sin? What we know about Jesus is that he, was, he had no sin. He lived a perfect life. He was, like I said, a baller. He did great things. He was the perfect example of humankind, our sin, and specifically my sin. So every time that I've let my insecurity stop me from loving someone well, Every time that I've pushed on people to prop myself up, every time I've looked at somebody and thought in my mind, you're not that impressive, I'm better than you. Every time I've used someone else for my pleasure, every time I've hurt people, it was your sin. It was every time you've just decided, you know what, I'd rather hurt someone than me hurt myself. It was every time that you've taken something that doesn't belong to you. It was every time that you've taken advantage of someone, gotten hammered drunk. It was every time that you've convinced that tipsy girl to go home with you, even though you know that that's not right. Because in that moment when Jesus stared, stared into heaven, he saw us. He saw all of that. He saw my brokenness and he saw yours. And he saw every sin. Okay, that's crazy, but here's what's even crazier is that he saw us in that moment, but he didn't leave us because he decides in love to bear the burdens of my sin, bear the burdens of your sin on the cross, 
and says this incredibly powerful prayer, yet not what I will, but what you will. He takes it in stride because he loves you more than your sin. Okay. The garden gives us an insight into the love of Jesus. Because if we're honest with ourselves, if someone sits across from you and they ask you the right questions, you are 15 minutes away from being on your knees bawling. That if they bring up that person in your life that died too early, if they bring up that person in your life that took your trust and walked away with it, if they bring up whatever happened in your life, you are closer than you think you are. Jesus knows. He knows what it feels like to hurt. He knows what it feels like in that moment in the garden to be bawling his eyes out. He knows your pain and he knows mine. And how loving is it for Jesus to cry? Part two, Jesus the lamb. Okay, I'm gonna level with you guys. Um, when I first started following Jesus, and started doing this whole church thing, I was like pretty confused why people talk about sheeps and lambs so much in Christianity and like sing to them. I was like, oh, this is whack. And then you bring in blood and then animal sacrifices and I was like, mm, this might be a short-term thing. I was like, this sucks, I don't know. Okay, just, okay, with me, imagine this thing. Okay, imagine someone's doing an animal sacrifice in front of Kaufman. How fast would you walk by? You would be like the fastest speed walker of all time. You'd show up to your class, the professor would be like, what's wrong with you? You'd be like, animal sacrifice. And he'd be like, okay, taking the day off, not coming back. Um, yeah, so animal sacrifices are weird, which is why we're gonna talk about them, which is great. So, okay, here's the deal. Um, the sacrifice of lambs in the Bible is a reference to God's love for us, okay? So two weeks ago, we heard from Jordan that God made this world absolutely beautiful. That if we were there, we would have that aha moment where we show up to like a really beautiful nature place or whatever, a park, and you would just be like, this is what life was supposed to be like. Jordan talked about that moment. Last week, we heard about how sin is missing the mark. That sin is biblical language for evil. So evil came into the world. And here's what the reality is is evil creates two forms of brokenness. Okay, so recently someone that I care about a lot, a friend, she got her car stolen. Now, I was there when we showed up to the parking spot and the car just wasn't there anymore. And you like go through all these different scenarios, but at the end of the day, it just sucks. And you can just feel the injustice. Do you know what I mean? Like, that sucks, but what if in this scenario, I was the one who stole her car? What if it wasn't some rando, but it was me? Okay, how would I pay her back? I would have to give her her car back and I'd probably have to Venmo her a couple hundred extra for like Ubers during the time. Or I'd have to replace the bumper that I knocked off in a joyride or whatever, but that wouldn't actually be enough, right? Because what else is true is I didn't just steal her car, I stole her trust. We had a foundation of a relationship where we trusted each other and had safety within our friendship, and I stole that from her too. Okay, sin is stealing from God. You didn't just steal from him, you hurt him. I hurt him. Okay, so God hates evil and is perfectly good. So you might ask yourself this question, why doesn't a really good God just destroy all evil from the world? 
right? Why doesn't he take that evil that stole my friend's car? Why doesn't he take the pain of this world? Why doesn't he just take it all away if he's so good? Because here's the issue. For a good God to destroy all evil, he'd have to destroy all of humanity. Because the same evil that stole my friend's car is inside of me. The same evil that strips away families, the same evil that breaks apart people, the same evil that tortures for the the minerals in our cell phones, that same evil that's out there is inside of me. And so for a good God to destroy evil, he'd have to destroy me. He'd have to destroy you. But the crazy thing is that our God is so good that he would choose to destroy evil and yet love humanity. So he gives us a way. So this is where lambs come in. I know we're talking about lambs a lot, but we just got to do it. Okay. Lambs in the Old Testament signified the way. God wanted to give humanity a way out. So what lambs signified is that the lamb would die instead of me. So I'd sacrifice the lamb because of my sin and we'd be good, except we wouldn't be because remember that we didn't just steal from God, we hurt him. So we would sacrifice lamb after lamb after lamb, and it was never enough. And so it would point to the one true lamb. See, this is how ridiculous God is. This is wild, but whatever. Okay. God would actually pay us back for the car that we stole and say sorry to us before we go to him. He does this crazy thing called giving his son for us on the cross. And so Jesus outlines this very idea in the last meal that he had with his disciples, the Passover meal. If you've been to Salt City Church at all, you know that we do communion. This is the moment where they established that. It was with Jesus and his boys or whatever. Okay. Um, He told them that his bread or that his body represents the bread, which represents the paying back for the sin. And the wine or the blood represents building back the relationship that we lost with God, that was tarnished with God. Okay, so now we see the lamb to the slaughter where his body will be broken, killed, and his blood will be poured out for many. So we'll see this in Mark chapter 15, 33 to 34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema shibachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, I think the biggest miss here is if you think about the cross and think the biggest pain was the physical pain. And I guarantee you that physical pain was brutal. That nails were driven through his hands, that he had a crown of thorns and his back was tarnished from the whips. But but here's what's true. It's more painful than the ripping apart of his body was the ripping apart of his bond with his father. That in that moment, sin and evil flooded into Jesus. And he was broken on the cross. See, God hated evil, but he loved you more. So instead of destroying you, he watched as you destroyed his only son. Mark 15, 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, so the curtain symbolizes the barrier between humanity and God, that we broke the relationship, that there needed to be 
something to hold us between. But, but when Jesus died, the curtain actually tore in two. He opened up the way into God's arms. And now we get to have community with God. And we get to know his joy and his righteousness. And it's absolutely beautiful. But it came at a cost. So you might ask yourself, why would God do this? We talked about a God that's so good that he would hate sin but love the sinner. But why would he let his son die on the cross? As I was thinking about this, I began to think of my relationship with my own dad. Um, okay, when I was younger, not anymore, but when I was younger, I used to love playing video games on my computer, okay? If it was up to me, I'd be on the computer playing video games and eating gummy worms for like 14 hours a day. It would be an amazing life, and it'd be so good. But get this, my dad had the audacity to make me do next year's math textbooks over the summer. Who does that? Guys, come on. I was like, bro, I would look at him and I'd be like, dad, I'm not going to be a doctor. And he'd be like, go to your textbook. And I'm like, That's, that sucks. Okay. That bloat. And it was in the summer. And I was like, God, look at all the fun kids and stuff. Okay, I don't know where we were at. But in my hypothetical scenario, I was just pissed. I was like, God, or dad, why would you make me do that? That was a slip up. Okay. Dad, why would you make me do that? Right? So in my mind, when I was seven years old, I was like, okay, dad just doesn't love me. I was like, he's making me do math textbooks, and I don't even want to be a doctor. I'm like, this sucks. Dad doesn't love me. Okay, here's what I didn't know about my dad, is that he grew up after the Korean War in Korea, and he grew up in such real poverty, but that likely he never got to touch a textbook until he was like 18 or 19 years old that they were struggling to put food on the table. They didn't have money for textbooks. And so what he wanted to do was he wanted to sacrifice everything he's ever wanted for himself so that I could live a life that he never got to live. So that I could get on that textbook and go through school and do well because he never had that opportunity. Okay. On the cross, God sacrificed everything for you so that you could have the opportunity to live a life that you could never live on your own. You did it because God loves you. And if you've ever believed in the lie that God doesn't love you, look at the cross. Maybe for you, you've been asking God for the last year or two to take away the mental illness that feels like it's crippling to you, and he hasn't. Maybe for you, you had a friend die a little bit too early before they got to live life. Maybe for you, you've watched as people in your life have walked through broken pain that you never thought they'd have to walk through. And what I'm telling you is that when you doubt, when you're scared and when you're not sure if God is real or if he loves you, I'm telling you, look at the cross. Because every nail, every whiplash, everything that Jesus went through on the cross, he thought about you. And yeah, you put him there, but he was there, and the joy was set before him. And he's like, it's worth it because he loves you, and he loves me. And every single brutality, every pain, even in the separation, Jesus saw the joy that was set out before him because he loves you, and it was worth it. Part three. Jesus the King. And I want to go straight into the verses here 
in Mark chapter 16, six through eight. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled for the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Okay, so this might seem like a pretty bummer ending to a book, okay? I'm telling you, it's, it's way better. Okay, uh, we see two followers of Jesus in this moment described as fleeing, trembling, and afraid. But we also see that they're astonished. And I think there's a clue in this passage that actually signals to us huge hope. So we look at verse 7. He says, but go, tell, your, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you, just as he told you. Okay. Before ministry, I worked as an intern at a finance um, thing, finance office. Okay, whatever. Um, where when we had new client meetings, my boss, my coworker, and I, we'd all sit at the same table. We'd all wear some bougie suits. We'd have our matching coasters, and it was really cute and whatever. Um, but here's the thing, is when new clients would come in, they would know exactly who my boss was within like the first four or five seconds. What he didn't have to say verbally, which is that he started that practice 16 years ago, he makes dollars, like he has the jag out and the drag, okay. He didn't have to say any of that, they just knew it. Why did they know it? Because when he asked them if they wanted water and they said yes, guess who got up and got them that water? Real fast, I got out of that seat super quick, got them the water. When he, asked, when he told them that we'd be sending them a deliverable in the afternoon, I was the one feverishly taking notes on my little laptop, getting that to them. Why? Because his authority of his words revealed his identity. They knew who was in charge because his words actually held weight. And other people did stuff when he talked. Okay. What the angel is saying here is twofold. That one, Jesus has risen from the dead. Which, by the way, we just talk about this in Christianity like it was lightweight. No, Jesus rose from the dead. That's crazy. Okay, I don't know. I just get pumped about it. It's just awesome. Okay, Jesus rose from the dead. Two, Jesus' words held authority even over death. Mark 14, 28. This was before Jesus was killed. He said, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee just as he told you. Mark 10, 33-34, see we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise just as he told you. Guys, Jesus gave his disciples a play-by-play -play of his death, his resurrection and where he would be after he died and rose again. Like, that's what he told his disciples. And this angel was like, yo, just go where he said. And it's just crazy, okay? So what does this tell us? This tells us that Jesus' words held power. That it tells us that Jesus is who he says he is. That his authority, even over death, shows his identity. That he is King Jesus. Okay, roll with me here. If that's true, okay, what else could be true for your life? If this guy 2,000 years ago died on a cross for you, rose again, and has changed millions of lives in the last 2,000 years, what could be true for you?
is that we have hope. We have hope in Jesus. And here's what I mean. Okay, if that's true and his words hold power, then this is also true, that if you've ever been lonely, if you've ever been walking down the pedestrian bridge surrounded by people, you, you, you felt so alone, Matthew 28 says that, behold, he will be with you to the end of the age. You will never be alone again. If you've gone home to a home that doesn't feel like home, and maybe people in your family don't understand why you do this Jesus thing, maybe people in your family don't get why you go to Salt Company and they think it's a cult or whatever, whatever they think it is, maybe that's you. You go to home and it doesn't feel like home. Well, in Mark 3, Jesus says that those who do the will of his father are now his brother brothers, mothers, and sisters. You are invited into his family where he will never make fun of you. He'll bring you in and he'll show you that you are worth. If you've ever just gotten exhausted by the burdens that you put on yourself or the burdens of this world, in Matthew 11, it says that come to him all who are weary and he will give you rest. You don't have to sit in your pain anymore. You can just come to him. And maybe if you're like me and it's hard for you to trust, Maybe for you, you've lived your entire life not trusting people, and you've been slow to trust. In Deuteronomy 31, he will, he will never leave you or forsake you. That you can actually learn how to trust again. And if you've felt worthless at any point in your life, and maybe that's you right now in the seat, you have felt worthless, and you have felt like your life wasn't going to add up to anything. In Romans 8, it says that you are now co-heirs with Christ. You will stand with him in heaven one day. You don't have to feel that way. God has given you unlimited worth. He has brought you into his family. If you've ever wondered if God loves you. In John 3, it says that he gave his only son so that you could have everlasting life. That he loves you. Because of that, we have hope. Okay. So Saul Company, I want to end on this. How would you live if you actually believed that? If it wasn't just from this dude standing on stage that you don't know, or maybe you do, whatever. What if it wasn't just words that came out of my mouth? What if it was actually true? What if you were actually a co-heir with Christ? What if you knew that you were loved beyond comparison, that you could live a different life because you're not the same? Because when you met Jesus, he says you are a new creation. What if that was actually true for your life? Would you live differently? Would you love deeper? Would you take more risks on people? Would you take more risks on yourself? Because you realize that even if you fail, even if you fall short, that the king of the universe is with you and you are called his beloved sons and daughters, and you are different now. You can live a life with him for eternity. Let's pray. Yeah, God, I'm, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the people you've brought into this place, the way that you love us, Lord. It's crazy, and I'm so grateful that you are so good that you would hate the sin but love the sinner. I'm so grateful that you would love us so much that you would send your only son, that because of that we are new creations, because of that we have hope, because of that we can live different, and because of that we are now co-heirs with Christ. And things will never be the same in our life. And God, I believe that if we believe that, if we knew that, we would leave this place changed. In your name I pray, amen.